going to start, as we've started each of these messages, by making a declaration in the form of a prayer that Jesus' disciples made in Luke chapter 11. Do you remember it? Here it is. I'll say it and then you can say it out loud with me. Lord, teach us to pray. Can we say that together? Lord, teach us to pray. This is the request that Jesus' disciples made of him in Luke 11 when he was teaching them, probably in another situation, a different situation than, than the one in Matthew 6, but it's a great prayer. I want the Lord to teach me how to pray, and uh, he, he answers that request in the Lord's Prayer. I want to uh, start off with a question, and the question uh, really is uh, one that will require you to uh, focus so if you're on your phone right now checking your emails, you need to just stop for a minute. Um, if you're thinking about the temperature in the room, uh, just put that out of your mind. If you're thinking about whether you forgot to turn the crock pot on for lunch, just kind of set that aside. Um, if you're wondering why, everyone knows, why is there a black button on his shirt? I don't know, it came like that. So just put that out of your mind. Um, <laughs> any distractions that you have, to sort of put them out of your mind. And let me, let me make a statement and just kind of encourage you to respond to it on an emotional level. Here's the statement. Are you ready for this? God will not give away his glory to another. That's kind of a weighty statement. I want you to think about that for a minute. God will not give away his glory to another. That means, the statement means, he will not share it. He will not allow you or me to reduce him to some bland deity with a big smile and no teeth. He is ferocious. He is jealous for his own glory, and he is intolerant of anyone that tries to rob him of his glory. How does that hit you? Do you think that's a biblical truth? Where would we find that kind of teaching in the Bible? Well, it's found in passages like Isaiah 48.11. In Isaiah 48.11, Jesus or rather the Holy Spirit of God, speaks through the prophet Isaiah these words, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Notice the beginning of that verse. Sometimes preachers repeat themselves for emphasis. I said something twice, but I wasn't repeating it for emphasis. I was repeating it because the verse repeats it. For my own sake, for my own sake. God is very concerned here with himself, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned, meaning reduced or abused? He says, my glory I will not give to another. This is a little bit of a departure from what you read about God on Facebook, is it not? Or what you hear about God in secular, humanistic, religious faculties in the universities across our continent. Or in the study that that guy, you know, that guy you know, 
That study that that young guy runs out of his garage on Friday nights. That guy that's skeptical to all things strictly biblical and, and is just so cool and in touch with his culture that he feels it's necessary to run his own little shtick on Friday nights in his garage. You probably met people like that. You know, you and I have been inundated this week, knowingly, unknowingly, with different messages that have said things to us like, God is more interested in your own happiness than he is in his own glory. God is more interested in your own happiness than he is in his own glory. God wants you to feel good, pastor, elder, staff member, church leader, diligent Christian. God wants you to feel good and be affirmed in ministry for your sake. You've heard that this week. You've heard things like, you know, God is elastic. He's loose. He's flexible. He's all-inclusive. He's kind of very Canadian, actually. God's ethnicity is Canadian. It's kind of all-inclusive. He's, he's elastic. He's loose. He's flexible. And he's okay at times if we actually make him in our image. This is what you've heard. Don't kid yourself. You may not have been conscious of it, but you've heard this stuff this week. And in fact, you've heard it so much that it might be the case, Christian, brother and sister, it might be the case that you actually believe these things to be true. But I want you to be aware that these are thoroughly unoriginal thoughts. Thoroughly unoriginal. Thoroughly unoriginal. They were around long before the Dominion of Canada was constituted. In fact, they are merely recycled lies. You might say, well, I see that Isaiah has something to say about that, but that's Old Testament. By the way, don't ever pull that one on me because that's one of my biggest pet peeves in life when people just dismiss the Old Testament. They don't even know what that means. They can't explain it. But if they just say, oh, that's Old Testament. That's Old Testament. What they're saying is the first 39 books don't matter. That's a, an ignorant statement. Just telling you straight up. And I, you probably don't want to look ignorant around people, so you just got to stop saying that. But maybe you might say, well, I, Isaiah says it, but who reads the prophets anymore? I'm into Jesus. Well, do you know Jesus says the same thing? Jesus says the same thing. You know, Jesus, you might think, is more concerned with your glory, your fame, your success, but in fact, he's not. Even in the Lord's Prayer, the prayer itself begins with several it's all about God statements. Before we get to requests about freeing us from temptation and giving us our daily bread and forgiving us our debts as we forgive our debtors, before we get to any of that stuff, <clears throat> the Lord's Prayer opens with several it's all about God, people. It's all about God. It's not about you. It's all about God statements. 
Jesus taught us that we need to be sincere in our prayer. He taught us that we need to be simple in our prayer. And then we get to the Lord's Prayer itself. We're in Matthew chapter 6. If you have a Bible, we're in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And here's how it actually starts. He says, pray then like this. So here's, here's the lesson that we've been all waiting for for two weeks. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Almost everybody knows the Lord's Prayer in our culture. But there's a danger with hearing the same thing over and over and over again. You can sort of see it as a mantra, just sort of a cliche, and not actually think about what's being said. But the Lord's Prayer is interesting because it's quite exclusionary. It's quite exclusionary because, hear me clearly on this, that is in fact what prayer is. Prayer is, by definition, exclusionary. What do I mean by that? That's going to be clear as we study this text together. Prayer is naturally humbling. Naturally humbling. The nature of prayer itself is a humbling act because you're acknowledging somebody that's over you, above you, supreme compared to you. So it's a humbling act. It's not an arrogant act. It's not a prideful act. This is why Jesus challenged the hypocrites. How in the world can you be prideful in prayer? Like, be prideful in preaching. Be prideful in giving. Like, be prideful in evangelism. But you can't be, you can't be prideful in prayer because prayer is, by definition, a humbling act. It's you crying out to the divine, to God, saying, I need you. You're supreme. Prayer acknowledges then God's supremacy. How does it do this? How does prayer acknowledge the supreme stature and status of God? Four things. Prayer acknowledges God's exalted position. Prayer reveres God's holy name. Prayer calls upon God's rule to be recognized in your life and in this world. And prayer calls upon God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is another great reason why we've called this prayer series, these sermons, manifest. Because in prayer, God manifests to us the supremacy that is already His as we acknowledge it. So God doesn't become more supreme than if we fail to pray. God is supreme. He just is. But he manifests his supremacy to you as you acknowledge his supremacy. And that changes everything. We're going to see how that works. We're going to go to these four declarations and sort of chew on each of them a little bit. The first one is, I've given this to you already, prayer acknowledges God's exalted position. The text says, our Father, <clears throat> excuse me, in heaven. Let's just think about that. Our Father in heaven. We've mentioned this before several times, even in the lead up to this prayer. Jesus reminds his listeners that God is our Father. This is a huge emphasis in Jesus' teaching. 
God is addressed as Father or referred to as Father 65 times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke alone. How many times in all 39 books of the Old Testament do you think God is called Father? Five, ten, fifteen. Fifteen times in 39 books. Sixty-five times in the first three books of the New Testament, God is referred to as Father. This is huge because Jesus is pressing in, wants us to acknowledge the dynamic relationship that we have with God, this intimate relationship. He's Father, but there's relational relationality implied within Father-Son or Father-Daughter imagery in the Bible. So we have Him called our Father, and then we're told where that Father is. He says He is in heaven. Heaven, of course, is understood to be the abode of God, which means that when we think about God, we must think about God as one who is in an exalted place. He's in an exalted place. The word heaven is, is used in different ways in our culture, but the one here is in reference to the exalted status of God. So this is not the way we use it when we say, um, I, I would like two scoops of heavenly hash ice cream, or that cinnamon roll, oh, that was heavenly, or, oh, your little girl is so cute, she looks like an angel from heaven. This is a different use altogether of the word heaven. This is the abode of God, the future hope of the believer, and it points to God's exalted place vis-a-vis our place in life, which is far, far, far down the ladder. God is exalted. And so this passage, which is a prayer, right off the hop, calls the believer in prayer to declare the exalted status of God. Now, that's easy to hear, and it's actually not too difficult to preach, but it takes a little bit of soul-searching and meditation to really let it sink in. So we need to do that, and I want to help you with that. So I want to kind of look at this idea of God being in heaven a little bit, and maybe we could start with this question. Why is it that so much prayer is selfish? Have you ever prayed a selfish prayer? I've prayed many, 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 like embarrassingly umpteen dozen selfish prayers. I've prayed all kinds of selfish prayers. I'm actually pretty good at it. But how, how is it that prayer can be so selfish where we just, Father in heaven, and then we get right to what we want? I, I, all the other stuff is just lead in. It's just formality. Our Father in heaven, and now here's what I want. Here's what I want you to do, Lord. That's selfish praying. It's a selfish prayer. How, how can we be selfish in prayer, making it all about us? Well, the, the way that happens is that we forget that God is in heaven. We forget that God is in an exalted place over and above us. And it's my thinking as I study this passage that it is true that God wants to hear our requests because there are requests made in the Lord's Prayer. But here's the order. God wants to hear our requests after, after we've acknowledged His exalted position. 
That's actually more important. It's more important that we acknowledge God's holy position because that's eternal in nature. And it's an eternal prayer, and it's going to be eternally part of our worship, and it's going to be an eternal acknowledgement that we will make in all of eternity. Our requests are temporary. They just relate to this life. Help me to get better. I've been sick for a long time. That's just, that's only a temporary prayer. I need daily bread. That's temporary. Deliver me from temptation. That's temporary. But we will spend all of eternity exalting God. And somehow we will never, ever grow bored. There will be laughing in heaven. There will be smiling in heaven. There will be clapping in heaven. Do you know what bodily gesture there will not be in heaven? There will be no yawning in heaven. Heaven will perpetually satisfy us in God's infinite glory. Therefore, could we not say that unanswered prayer very well may be the result of a failure not to pray, but a failure to acknowledge his status in our prayer. Now this is a convicting one. But I think back all the, the times I've spent praying to the Lord. Like, man, I spent a lot of time on that one. I prayed for that one over and over again. I prayed for that one like a hundred times. <clears throat> Why didn't God answer? Why didn't God come through? Maybe I failed to fundamentally acknowledge his exalted status. I failed to be in awe of who he is, to remind myself that he is in heaven and I am on earth. That he is exalted and I am not. And even though I may have prayed the initial lines sort of from rote memory, I didn't really mean them. It's kind of like going to a king and asking for clemency or asking for land or asking for uh, a lordship and failing to acknowledge him and all of his majesty, failing to humble yourself before him. You know, you get a lot more out of a king if you start off with the words, your majesty, and you bow low and you acknowledge who he is. You get a lot more out of him when you acknowledge who he is. Sometimes we go to God and we fail to really think about the fact that he is in heaven. He is in an exalted place. By the way, this might scare some of you, but if, if you're growing in maturity, this might actually <clears throat> enthuse you. And it's this idea that when we acknowledge that God is in heaven in our prayer lives, you know what that also triggers? A different kind of praying. Our prayers actually change. The central focus of our prayer life becomes Him. And I'm just the footnote. God's glory, God's supremacy, God's majesty, God's gospel, God's holiness becomes far, far, far more important and significant to us than our own little temporal affairs. So it actually changes the substance of your prayer. I don't want you to be looking for this because 
you sort of need to mind your own business in this regard, but if you listen to people pray, and 90% of the prayer is about us, it's because they don't get this. The person that knows how to pray spends the lion's share of their prayer time and their emphasis seeking the glory of God. This is a, a message that is historic. It goes back to Isaiah and millennia before that. But it has been so polluted and watered down in the modern church because so much of the modern church is fixated on making you have a great experience on Sunday. And, and let's be honest, we can come to church with selfish desires and motives. And we can evaluate the success of a church based upon how it makes us feel. Now, don't get me wrong, my faith is very emotional. And when I encounter God in all of His glory, I feel way better than when I don't. And I very much have an emotional relationship with God. I mean, I love God. God brings me joy. Emotions, I'm not, I'm not downplaying emotions. I'm just downplaying the source of the emotions. Is the source of my good emotions my own happiness? Or is the source of my good emotions the glory of God? Changes the way we pray. So together... Let's pray the prayer. Our Father in heaven. And then we have, secondly, hallowed be your name. Prayer reveres God's holy name. We're not just saying here, oh, you need to acknowledge in some theological way that one of the qualities of God is holiness. This isn't what's being said here, but we are saying, I will honor, I will revere, I will respect your name as holy, Lord. I will do this. Hallowed be your name. It's not just, again, I'm acknowledging it. It's a check mark in the box, the formula of prayer leading up to my requests. No, hallowed be your name. I'm making it as a statement, a declaration. I'm saying, I believe this to be true. And I want to declare it to you, Lord. Hallowed be your name. So it, it's a declarative statement that is personal in nature, not just a declaration of truth. Do you see the difference? We can declare things to be true, but they are not necessarily declarative statements that flow from our souls, that we believe. Like it's an, it's a, in the moment, when we say, hallowed be your name, we are in fact worshiping him in the moment. In a theological class, I could say, okay, here's some of the characteristics of God. He's all-knowing, he's benevolent, he's holy. In that context, I'm just telling you something that's true. But in prayer, we don't just pray that which is true. We declare it to the Lord as an act of worship in the moment. So this is the personal declaration whereby the believer bows low before the king and pays him joyful homage. We like get low before the Lord and we love it. And we're humbled in his, in his presence. Who here believes that God is holy? You're in the wrong place if you don't. This is one of the hallmarks of the Christian God. God is holy. 
God speaks holy words. We have holy Bible written on the spines of our Bibles. God is holy. Now, having acknowledged something that is true, let me ask you a follow-up question. Who here has acknowledged it this week? Who here has acknowledged in their mind that God is holy? By thinking holy thoughts. Who here has acknowledged that God is holy with their mouth? By speaking holy things. Who here has acknowledged that God is holy by engaging in holy actions? I, I think you understand what I'm trying to do this morning. I'm trying to help us to see that there's a difference between that which we believe to be true and that which we embrace. And the Lord's Prayer wants us to embrace the holiness of God and allow His holiness to affect us. Inform us, yes, but also affect us. Did you know that the degree to which you acknowledged God's holiness this week is directly tied to the effectiveness of your prayer? Like, why is my prayer so ineffective? What does the Bible say? The prayer of a righteous man, holy man. That's effective. If your prayer is not effective, maybe it's because you have not embraced the holiness of God and hallowed his name. I have friends, even Christian friends, who pray and then declare their frustration that God doesn't answer their prayers. And I'm always very careful to try, try not to judge people's emotions, but you can kind of get a little bit of an understanding of who people are based upon their actions, I think. And sometimes I hear people who get frustrated with God because God doesn't answer, but I'm looking at them thinking, well, it's quite evident to me that you're harboring pride in your life or you're lacking in faith. What are you expecting? What do you think is going to happen? You've not acknowledged the holiness of God either with your mind, your mouth, your hands, your heart. You're harboring pride. You think you're the center of the world. You think it's all about you. Or you lack faith. Your eyes are on the temporal. They're not the supernatural. Why do you think your prayer is ineffective? And that can be true of Christian leaders as well. Not just people sitting in the far back of the church who've been saved for a week. It can be true of seasoned believers. I mean, I'm a parent. It's not very likely that I would acknowledge or meet my child's request if they're being arrogant and prideful and snotty and selfish and rude. I'm not going to meet your need. Like, I want a little respect here first. I want you to acknowledge that I'm your dad. And when you offer me that, then I'm more apt to meet your requests. Same with God. God's not going to facilitate our narcissism. God's not going to accommodate our selfishness, our ego-centered living. But when we pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, wow, then the gates of heaven open up. God sends out his ministering angels. God's spirit works in our lives. God gifts us with so many things that we really need.
So prayer reveres God's holy name. Third, prayer calls upon God's rule to be recognized. We've prayed this before many times. Those of us that have been around long enough to remember prayer in public school. By the way, how many of you prayed, remember doing the Lord's Prayer in public school? Show of hands. You remember that? Do you, do you remember when all the Jehovah's Witnesses kids would always leave the room? Remember that? I actually respect them for that because they were being honest, <laughs> honest to their beliefs. But there was a time when we prayed this, so we've heard this many, many times. Your kingdom come. I prayed that many times. I wasn't quite sure what it meant, but it sounded kind of cool. It really is a call for God's rule to be recognized. It's not a call for God to start being the king. You hear that? It's not like, hey, I know you don't have a kingdom right now. Could you maybe whip one up? It's not what it is. Jesus is king. He is ruling. The kingdom of God is now. But the full acknowledgement, the full manifestation of God's kingdom has yet to come. So there's this tension. He rules, but his rule is not fully evident to all. And so this is a request that that would become evident in this world, in my life, in your life, in the lives of all, that God's rule would become evident. It is a request based upon a hopeful reality. I've selected my words very carefully there because I don't want you to think hope means, well, I wish it would happen, but I'm not sure it's going to happen. No, no. It's a prayer request based upon a hopeful reality. The kingdom of God will come in all of its fullness. And so this kind of prayer, we could say, keeps us focused on what really, really matters. The full display of God's kingdom power and glory in my life, in our church, and in this world soon. And when we pray this prayer, we're essentially saying, Lord, the sooner the better, as far as I'm concerned. The sooner the better. Many of us pray like this, Lord, I want your kingdom to come, but first let me finish high school. Lord, I want your kingdom to come, but first I'd like to get married. That'd be kind of cool. Lord, I want to get married, but first give me a few kids. I, don't, I always want to know what it's like to be a, a parent. God, your kingdom come, but I'd kind of like to retire and benefit from the fruits of my labor. I mean, I don't want to throw away my pension plan. And then we're like 80, and we're like, okay, now you can actually come. Uh, that, that is not a Christian view of life. A Christian view of life is the sooner, the better. And when we pray this kind of prayer, it reminds us of our rightful place, and I think there are at least three immediate benefits to this. It brings humility, and we all, I need a lot more of that. And I know some of you need a lot more of that. We all need more humility. Can we agree to that? Can we agree to that? Okay, there's some people in the room that don't value that, obviously. We all need more humility, and when God is king and we acknowledge we are not. It brings humility. Secondly, it brings peace. How does it bring peace? 
hey, newsflash, it's a whole lot more peaceful when you realize you're not in charge. I don't know about that. I like to be in charge because then I can control my life. No, no. Then it's stressful. Then people dislike you. <laughs> I heard a pastor this week, we were all at Harvest University, he said, you know, I've never been, I was never really hated before I became a pastor. Um, people have said, I, I hate you. I've experienced that. I've, this isn't my first rodeo. I've been doing this for over two decades. I would have far more friends and far fewer enemies if I wasn't in public ministry. I know that for a fact. There are people that have said, I hate you. I hate you. Now, you know, you, you need to consider the source and the reasons. It's usually tied more to your actions and your functions than your personhood. But being in charge is not fun. Those of you who are supervisors at work, is that like a total blast or what? Everybody loves you? Everybody acknowledges you? Maybe some of you have been in politics. My dad was a warden of a county in Ontario. He was the mayor of a large municipality. He said, nobody thanks you for what you do. All you get is the negatives. Like you run for election, I'm going to be, make a big name for myself, and then everybody hates you for it. It's a lose-lose. So being in charge, hey, you know what? It's, it's anticlimactic. Just remember that. Being in charge is anticlimactic. Well, fortunately, in our prayer, when we are like, I am not in charge, that brings peace. Like, wow. Oh, okay, I might be in charge of the church. I might be in charge of my home. But thank God I'm not in charge of everything. I'm not in charge of the kingdom. God is in charge. So it brings peace. To our troubled souls. And third, it's a great reminder, I'm a citizen of something bigger, and that's pretty neat. I'm a citizen of something bigger, so we pray together, your kingdom come. Finally, church, we pray. We call, in prayer, we call on God's will to be done. The text says, your will be done. From infancy, we all know how important it is to us for our will to be done. You could say, for our way. Like, I want my way to be done, my will to be done. We all just know that. Have you ever met like a two-year-old that's selfless? No. Say, how come my two-year-old is so selfish? Must be his father. Father's like, no, it must be the mom. Like, it must be television. We've got to take him away from television. He hasn't been to school yet. It can't be school. No, it's because he's human. We all know how to get our way. And then we grow up, we want our way in marriage. <laughs> we could talk about this for hours. <laughs> hours. It's like, make me feel good or I'm gonzo. That's the perspective that most people have. There's always a reason to bail. In church, if I can't get my way, I'm going to talk back. I'm going to gossip behind the scenes. That's what the cowards do. I'm going to try to elicit pity from people. Okay, I've seen all these stunts played. Okay, this, again, didn't just start doing this job yesterday. We all do it. In politics, I will resort to every dirty trick in the book to win or stay in power. We see that. No wonder people don't trust the government. 
But biblical prayer is prayer that wants God's supremacy to be acknowledged and therefore God's glory to be manifested in order for God's will to be done. And so in prayer, what we're doing is we're, as we drift from God's will, prayer realigns us with it. And then we drift again and prayer realigns us with it. And we drift again and prayer realigns us with it. That's why we pray, your will be done in prayer, Lord. Your will be done. And so together, let us be a people that prays in our prayer lives, your will be done. Tonight, we're kicking off our one in prayer challenge. We want you to be there. Uh, it's, it's more important than whatever game might be on tonight. Okay, it, it's more important than chilling out. It's, it's important stuff. I'm just asking you to come and uh, to pray in line with the Lord's Prayer. And in all of this, uh, let's just pray that God's glory would be acknowledged. That God would be recognized as holy. That God's reign would come in all of its fullness and that God's will would be done on earth as it is always done in heaven.